From beanies to carry bags and from shoes to caps, browse our shop now at tntradio.live. You're listening to Compass with Basil Valentine on today's News Talk TNT Radio. Today is Friday the 17th of November and welcome to Compass with me, Basil Valentine, the voice of sanity. This is your World News Hour here on TNT. In today's programme, I'll be joined by Swedish geopolitical analyst Mats Nielsen to look at the uh, situation legally with Israel and the Middle East after, as we heard there from Patrick Henningsen, Henningsen um, Erdogan has labelled Israel a terrorist state and Joe Biden himself has been accused of genocide. Also today, an ecological crisis in the Mekong River and Taylor Swift fans are ganging up on rebel Argentinian presidential candidate Javier Millet. But first, today, when Chinese President Xi Jinping met executives for dinner on Wednesday night in San Francisco, he was greeted with not one but three standing ovations from the US business community. It was one of several public relations wins for the Chinese leader on his first trip in six years to the United States, where he and President Joe Biden reached agreements covering fentanyl, military communications, and artificial intelligence in their meeting on the sidelines of the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Summit. All three were outcomes that the United States had sought from China rather than the other way around, said two people briefed on the trip. But Xi appeared to have achieved his own aims, earning US policy concessions in exchange for promises of cooperation, an easing of bilateral tensions that will allow more focus on economic growth and a chance to appeal to foreign investors who increasingly have been shunning China. More now in this report. As you know, I just concluded several hours the meetings with President Xi, and I believe they're some of the most constructive and productive discussions we've had. They were certainly the first discussions Biden had had with China's President Xi in more than a year. President Biden, how are talks going? Are you getting what you want? But no one expected any great outcomes from the meeting, save for the fact the leaders of the world's two biggest economies were finally back on talking terms. The thing that I, I find most assuring is he raised, and I fully agree, that either one of us have any concern, any concern about anything between our nations or happening in our region. We should pick up the phone and call one another and we'll take the call. That's an important progress. When being able to pick up a phone is important progress, you know just how bad things had become. There's that. So bad that earlier this year, when a Chinese what spy balloon was spotted over the United States, Biden didn't call President Xi and instead told the world China was attempting to steal America's secrets and sent fighter jets to blow the balloon out of the sky. It's hit. It's going down. China was outraged, as was America, when Vladimir Putin travelled to Beijing last month to stand shoulder to shoulder with his dear friend, President Xi. Throw in a tit-for-tat build-up of American and Chinese military might in the waters off Taiwan and a crackdown on US investment in key Chinese markets and you have what many believed was the start of a new Cold War. I value our conversation because I think it's paramount that you and I understand each other clearly, leader to leader, 
with no misconceptions or miscommunication. So Biden and Xi coming together is a clear sign that both sides want to thaw tensions. It is our peoples reaching out to each other that has time and time again brought the China-US relationship from a low ebb onto the right track. I'm convinced that once the door is opened, it will not shut again. Warm words probably intended for these ears, American chief executives who were wined and dined by the Chinese president last night. With Beijing's economic growth slowing, she is desperate for U.S. investment doors to reopen. He needs American upskilling. He needs American investment. Uh, he doesn't want to lose that. And if Xi Jinping can provide any reassurance and keep the flow of investment and trade going, uh, he will consider that a win. But it wasn't a win he won yesterday. And nor will China and America ever agree on Taiwan. But the two leaders did at least agree to allow their military commanders to speak again and said they'd work together to clamp down on fentanyl, the drug that kills thousands of Americans every year. Things had been going precisely to plan until... Do you still refer to President Xi as a dictator? This is a well, look, he is. I mean... President Biden, now off the teleprompter, casually labelled Xi a dictator to the visible dismay of his Secretary of State. But proving that authoritarian leaders can also have a fluffy side, President Xi left the best bit till last, announcing that Beijing's pandas, who'd been summarily summoned back to China from the US, would now be allowed to return. This time, he said, as envoys of the newfound friendship between China and the United States. China's economy is indeed slowing, and earlier this month it reported its first quarterly deficit in foreign direct investment. And the ruling Communist Party has battled political intrigues that have raised questions about Xi's decision-making, including the sudden and unexplained removals of his foreign and defence ministers. If the US and China can manage their differences, it will mean that Xi Jinping doesn't have to divert all of his attention to bilateral relations, said Alexander Neal, an adjunct fellow at Hawaii's Pacific Forum think tank. The United States' traditional ally in the Pacific region, the Philippines, has accused China of seeking to bully smaller countries into submission and vowed it will continue its missions to deliver supplies to a grounded derelict warship that serves as an outpost in the South China Sea. The Philippines deliberately grounded the BRP Sierra Madre at the second Thomas Shoal, a submerged reef in the Spratly Islands, in 1999 to guard against expansion by China, and the ship has become a growing flashpoint in the fiercely disputed waters. Beijing has demanded the warship's removal and over recent months has repeatedly tried to block the Philippines' boats from delivering supplies to troops abroad, firing water cannon and targeting vessels with a military-grade laser and performing what Manila has condemned as dangerous manoeuvres. It claims almost the entire South China Sea, despite a tribunal finding this to have no legal basis. More now on the background to the dispute and what's happening in the sea itself, 
In this special report from NHK World Japan. One item on the agenda of that U.S.-China summit is a series of disputes in the South China Sea between Beijing and some of its neighbors. They include the Philippines. The country has started using a Japan-made air surveillance radar system to monitor maritime activities off its coasts. NHK World Sakai Noriyuki reports. Five hours out of Manila, we can see the radar system at an Air Force base facing the South China Sea. It can monitor the airspace down to the sea surface in an area where the Philippines has territorial disputes with countries, including China. A commander says the system can monitor movements that were not detected before. West Philippine Sea is one of the priority areas of uh, our uh, government in terms of national security. Let us introduce some of the FPS 3ME's notable features. A major Japanese maker of electronics and electric equipment delivered a system. It was developed at the request of the Philippine military. The company was able to export it under a set of policy principles established by the Japanese government in 2014 on the transfer of defense equipment and technology. China's maritime activities are the main reason why the Philippines wanted the new later. Beijing claims jurisdiction over almost all of the South China Sea. Its ships are stepping up their activities there. China has been building artificial islands, one after another in the disputed waters, and militarizing the area. In the face of such assertiveness, Manila wants a stronger military and is looking to other countries for support. At the same time, Japan wants to boost cooperation with countries worried about China's growing military influence. Based on these shared strategic interests, the two countries are expected to deepen their security cooperation. His visit marks another important milestone in the strategic partnership between our two countries. We must note with appreciation Japan's commitment to the Philippines. Japanese Prime Minister Kishida Fumio stresses that his country's exports of defense equipment will contribute to regional peace and stability. But some analysts worry that expanding the transfers could lead to armed conflict. Japan will need to debate and decide its level of involvement in the security of other countries. Sakai no Ryuki, NHK World, Manila. On a more positive note, Leila B. Lokosang, senior ARBE technical advisor of the African Union Commission, says African countries can learn a lot from China when it comes to modernizing their agricultural sectors. He added that the improving China and United States relationship will benefit the whole world, especially Africa. His comments come as China and Africa on Wednesday vowed to further enhance the China-Africa cooperation under the Belt and Road Initiative, with stakeholders pledging financial support to bolster high-quality BRI cooperation. More now in this report on the first China-Africa summit from CGTN Africa. 
China and African nations have committed to further cooperate under the Belt and Road Initiative. China's mission to the African Union hosted a high-level seminar on Wednesday in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. The seminar assessed ways for project and trade financing and cross-border payment and settlement. Experts and policymakers attending this seminar also discussed the impact of Chinese investment in Africa. This year marks the 10th anniversary of the Belt and Road Initiative, 52 of 54 countries in Africa have signed BRI cooperation documents with China. Experts say this cooperation has yielded fruitful results in trade, direct investment and infrastructure. The railways, bridges, roads, ports and the other infrastructures all fully demonstrated that Africa and China are true friends and the Africa-China Belt and Road Cooperation outcomes are tangible. One of the major challenges for the African uh, CFTA is put the poor infrastructure hindering African countries you know, to trade among themselves. Uh, in, in addition to uh, the infrastructure development and the financing, the built-in road initiative do have also overall you know, ramification on the overall economic growth as well as the development of African countries. I think it will be more economic projects more feasible etc etc so i think the projects will look different with more public uh, with, more, with more private participation i think that will be a change going forward we're going to take a short break now when we come back spanish prime minister pedro sanchez has won a vote of confidence in that country's parliament and will continue as premier plus the latest from the middle east we'll be right back TNT Radio's Steve Malzberg. Israel rescued a female member of the IDF who was kidnapped by Hamas. And the media interpreted that or put that out accidentally on purpose as she was released. Now, what does that mean? That means that the good people of Hamas released another hostage. It took Dana Perino on the five on Fox to actually say and indict her own network, who when they went live to their guy in Israel, also used the word released. And when they finally came back to Dana to talk about everything, she said, I just want to say something. She said earlier today, Israel rescued that female soldier. And we made a mistake too. We said she was released. She wasn't released. And she went into the whole thing about how that just props up Hamas. I mean, how could journalists, quote unquote, not know the freaking difference between rescued and released? Steve Malzberg on TNT Radio. When you can point me to an industry, to a platform, that reaches 250 million people a month, virtually nine out of 10 Americans. That's real, that's substantive, that's important. And that reach and that touch point and that daily reinforcement, it's an amazing place to be able to communicate messages. That's massive. To find out more, go to tntradio.live. The latest information and analysis of major events from around the world. You're listening to Compass with Basil Valentine on today's News Talk TNT Radio. In a moment, what is Israel's endgame in Gaza and the war of culture and words surrounding the conflict? But first, Pedro Sanchez has been re-elected Prime Minister of Spain.
The vote came after nearly two days of debate among party leaders that centered almost entirely on a highly controversial amnesty deal for Catalonian separatists. Mr. Sanchez agreed to the bill in return for vital support from six smaller parties in order to get elected prime minister again. The Socialist Workers' Party, PSOE leader, who has governed Spain since 2018, was backed by 179 deputies in the 350-seat lower house of parliament. Only the right-wing opposition parties voted against him. Details now in this report. Pedro Sanchez has won a parliamentary vote, giving him a second term as Spain's prime minister. The country is divided, though, over his decision to grant Catalan separatists an amnesty in return for their support. His Socialist Party came second in July's inconclusive election. But Mr Sanchez reached deals with smaller parties to find enough votes to continue in government. Thousands of protesters rallied outside his party's headquarters on Wednesday opposing the amnesty for Catalan separatists. He won another term by a wafer-thin margin of 179 votes to 171. More on this, we're joined by our news reporter in Madrid, Guy Hedgeco. Guy, welcome to you. Just explain this deal and why it's proving so controversial. Well, Mr. Sanchez needed uh, the support of a number of regional nationalist parties in order to form a majority in this investiture vote. Among those nationalist parties whose support he needed were, were two Catalan nationalist parties. They demanded from him this amnesty, an amnesty which uh, will benefit more than 300 Catalan nationalists uh, who have been facing legal charges for their role in separatist activity over the last decade or so, in particular, an attempted breakaway from Spain in 2017. All those charges will be dropped against those more than 300 Catalan nationalists. Now, um, opponents of this amnesty say it, it is illegal. It doesn't fit within the constitution, um, that it gives preferential treatment to, the, to Catalonia, um, and that is bad for the rest of Spain, all the other regions of Spain, and also that it, it encourages future separatist activity. So for all those reasons, uh, people have been taking to the streets, uh, either outside the, the Socialist uh, Party headquarters over the last couple of weeks, or today outside Congress, to protest against the amnesty and essentially say that this uh, new government which is formed is not legitimate. Yeah, five or so years ago, there were some really huge protests in the country that kind of brought it to a halt almost, didn't they? Just explain who, and at that time, quite a few people were put in jail, weren't they, those Catalan separatist leaders. Um, just explain who might be given amnesty under this deal, how quickly? Well, it's a very broad amnesty. So, um, as I say, a lot of the people who will be affected will be people who were involved in that 2017 uh, breakaway attempt that you mentioned there. Um, so, for example, uh, heads of schools who allow, allowed their schools to be used for the referendum that was held um, in, back in 2017 in Catalonia against the wishes of the courts. Um, but also, um, for example, uh, Carlos Puigdemont, the former Catalan president who led that breakaway attempt and then who then fled to Belgium, where he's been ever since, he will benefit from this amnesty. So will several others who fled abroad as well. Um, so those are some of the people who could benefit from this. We don't know exactly when the law will come into effect. It needs to go through Congress first. We expect it to be approved, but then it has to go through the Senate um, and then judges have to introduce it case by case. All we've been told is that it should be introduced or implemented sometime next year. Now, the guess is that possibly in the spring, 
but it could face quite a bumpy ride in terms of legal appeals against it. OK, Guy, thank you for the update from Madrid there. In the past few hours, the Israeli military has been saying activities in the Gaza Strip were ongoing overnight and that they involved soldiers on the ground and aircraft striking targets. They say they've been hitting an Islamic Jihad command post in the north of the Gaza Strip, where they found drones and rockets, and targeted a school being used by Hamas fighters. But Al Jazeera say they only have Israel's word on all of this because of the difficulty in reporting on the ground and the restrictions that the military imposes. So given that this is a one-way flow of information, Al Jazeera say they're not getting it from any other sources, and it's essentially a constructed narrative that the Israelis are putting out, telling Israelis and the rest of the world that we're achieving our aims and we are beating Hamas. We've also learned this morning that an Israeli bombing attack has targeted a school where thousands of civilians were sheltering. A large number of people are dead and wounded after the strike at Al-Fala School, which housed thousands of displaced people in the Zaytun neighborhood south of Gaza City. Hundreds of thousands of people still live in Gaza City and North Gaza. The Palestinian Central Bureau of Statistics has estimated the population of Gaza City and the North Gaza governorate to still be over 800,000. Before the war, they said, the population of these two areas was 1.2 million, meaning about one third of those who lived there have now been displaced by the attacks. Israeli military operations continue in Gaza City and North Gaza. Heavy fighting and Israeli armed strikes, uh, airstrikes are constant, posing grave risks to the civilians who still live in those areas. Communications networks are still down and the breakdown in communications have continued with Palestinian media in the occupied West Bank reporting considerable problems reaching residents of the coastal Gaza Strip this morning. Calls are not going through and messages are not being delivered, they said. The organization NetBlocks, which is known for monitoring internet blockages, also confirmed the interruption of internet connections on the X platform. The reason is said to be a lack of fuel for the power generation for the communications infrastructure. Meanwhile, the United Nations Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs said humanitarian organizations and emergency services have warned that blackouts are endangering the safety of civilians and the delivery of life-saving assistance. With 800,000 people still living in the north of the Gaza Strip and more than that number in the south, including 400,000 displaced people, more international observers are asking, what is Israel's endgame in Gaza and will it ever return to normal? Here now, with an analysis is this report from Al Jazeera. Israeli warplanes relentlessly pound residential areas, hospitals and refugee camps in northern Gaza. Soldiers patrol the streets in Gaza City. Their commanders say that Hamas has lost control in the northern part and that the Israeli army's main mission is to destroy tunnels and command centers. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu faces growing anger at home for failing to deter 
the October the 7th attacks. The war in Gaza and its aftermath will decide his political future. I can tell you what they won't be. They won't be Hamas. They can't be an authority headed by someone who, after 30 days after the massacre, has yet to condemn the terrible massacre. It's not possible. There will have to be something else there. But either way, there will have to be our security control. Netanyahu denied reports suggesting his government may hand over Gaza to the Palestinian Authority. His far-right allies Itamar Ben-Gavir and Bitsalil Smotrich are in favor of sending settlers back to Gaza and forcing Palestinians into permanent migration abroad. Hamas says the war is far from over and the group will fight attempts to allow President Mahmoud Abbas regain control of the territory. We tell the American administration and the leaders of the occupation, Gaza will only be governed by its people. There will be no political or security authority except for the Palestinians there. We are a free people who do not accept guardianship from anyone, and our blood and our lives will be the price for our freedom and of our dignity. Palestinian leader Mahmoud Abbas faces a delicate task. If he agrees to a deal with Israel during the war, Palestinians will see it as an act of betrayal, and that will further erode his grip on power in the West Bank, something Abbas Fatah movement wants to prevent. I think uh, if we get our act together, if we come out of the blame game internally, if we are to uh, focus on the future and be convinced that Netanyahu's war is not only on Gaza, it is in, on the West Bank as well. So he'll finish with Gaza, turn to the West Bank. Uh, his concept is the uh, total displacement of Palestinians, is the eradication of Palestinian identity. Last week, Arab and Muslim leaders held a meeting in Saudi Arabia to discuss Gaza. They called for an end to the war and for humanitarian aid to be allowed into the Strip. But they also made it clear they won't send troops to police the territory, a risky move they all understand may fuel anger among their people. Hashim Ahbara Al Jazeera. We're going to take a short break now. When we come back, I'll be joined by Swedish geopolitical analyst Mats Nielsen to look at the legal implications for Israel of the current conflict. We'll be right back. Check this out. News Talk Radio. TNT Radio News. Matt Boyland with a look at your TNT headlines. TikTok is censoring videos promoting Osama bin Laden's letter to America, which he penned one year after 9-11, justifying the attacks which killed nearly 3,000 people. Israel's released new video claiming to have seized Gaza's largest port, which it says was controlled by Hamas. And after inviting over 100,000 migrants to live in his sanctuary city, New York City Mayor Eric Adams is now taking an axe to the city budget. Why not give TNT Radio a follow? We're on all major social platforms, including Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Gab, and Getter. Help us get the word out as we cover the biggest topics of our time right here on today's News Talk. TNT Radio. TNT Radio. Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie, and I'm uh, delivering the notice of intention to seek prosecution of Canadian officials for their complicity in war crimes. Um, Foreign Minister Jolie is one of uh, four uh, government ministers that are uh, cited in this uh, notice of, of uh, uh, attention to seek prosecution, uh, specifically global affairs, 
uh, refusal to end arms exports uh, to um, uh, to uh, to Israel amidst their uh, slaughter of more than a thousand or eleven thousand uh, Palestinians in Gaza. So across the country today in Toronto, um, Minister of Irani, the uh, Attorney General uh, in Ottawa, the Prime Minister's office uh, in Sherbrooke, the National uh, uh, Revenue Minister Marie-Claude Bibot, they are all being uh, served with this um, uh, notice of intention to, uh, to seek uh, prosecution, which is part of the International Center of Justice uh, for Palestinians, uh, uh, holding accountable um, uh, in this case, Canadian officials for their enabling of the horrors uh, we're seeing in Gaza today. Uh, there is a, a press event um, announcing uh, the details of this uh, of this uh, legal action, and um, in, in coming weeks and months, more and more uh, evidence is going to be compiled. And then there is a uh, uh, plan is to actually pursue uh, Minister Jolie, Prime Minister Trudeau, uh, Minister Bibot, uh, Virani uh, for their complicity in um, in uh, in war crimes um, uh, against uh, against uh, uh, Palestinians. So here I am. I'm going to the office is saying it doesn't take any it won't it doesn't take any meetings. <laughs> And uh, and uh, they, I think they were nervous that people might come and occupy the office. Um, so I'm just going to put it into the uh, into the slot uh, to make sure that the minister is uh, fully aware. And joining me now is Swedish geopolitical analyst Mats Nielsen to discuss the implications of this and indeed the worldwide revulsion at the ongoing genocide in Gaza. Welcome to the program, Mats. Thank you very much. Uh, you'd have got a big price, um, you know, long odds two months ago on Canadian ministers being indicted for war crimes. Nobody could really have foreseen this situation, Matt. But um, together with Erdogan this morning calling Israel a terrorist state, we really are seeing the world increasingly divided in two between those, uh, for example, on Capitol Hill, the United States Congress, though not its population, um, and indeed the leaders of the European Union, who still stand resolutely behind Israel. And on the other hand, international bodies, not just the International Center for Justice for Palestinians, but the United Nations itself, uh, as well, of course, as the human rights bodies saying, hang on a minute, there's a genocide going on here. So we've got sort of, you know, parallel realities colliding, Matt. It's a quite unprecedented situation. Well, I wouldn't perhaps say unprecedented, but uh, it's uh, it's definitely a, a backlash for the powers that be in the Western world. Uh, just uh, this uh, Wednesday, two days ago, uh, a recent Ipsos poll released by Reuters said that almost 70% of the Americans think that Israel should call a ceasefire in its attack on Gaza. And I think it's uh, only uh, two, perhaps 2% of uh, the politicians on the Hill who, who support calling for a cease, ceasefire. So uh, there is <clears throat> obviously a discrepancy, or a, how shall I put it, a cultural disconnect uh, 
between the Vox Populi and the people in power. And, and this is not unprecedented. It's, it's always been a situation where there has been a close groupthink as a key factor uh, of running policy blunders amongst politicians. Uh, because politicians, the people in charge, they, they're prone to become overconfident, out of touch with, with, with reality as it is. And mm -hmm. sometimes definitely over-reliant uh, over on uh, faulty information or faulty intelligence. Uh, mm -hmm. it's, not a new it's not a new diagnosis, but it, it's one that's now becoming obvious. And I think the politicians of the West will be facing a populist backlash um, in the weeks and months to come. Yes, we had the vote in the United Kingdom's House of Commons earlier this week, calling for a ceasefire, which was voted down by, I think, every Conservative that was there that voted, and most Labour members as well. Since then, the Green Party uh, in England have published a list of names of all the MPs, I think, and their addresses as well, who voted against a ceasefire there was a demonstration in tower hamlets which has a large muslim population uh, against their mp yesterday uh, you know hundreds of people gathering outside her offices chanting for a ceasefire now certainly on social media a lot of the traditional left are saying that there's no way they're going to vote for any mp that didn't support a ceasefire but of course in the uk we have our bizarre first past the post system which makes it very difficult for insurgent candidates to steal seats and um you know the main parties of course are hoping that all this will have died down by the time a general election comes around and people will be thinking about income tax and schools and you know all the other things that they usually vote on but it seems to me that passions are more inflamed about this issue than any other uh, that that I can remember in my dare I say fifty plus years of looking at politics. I've never seen so much anger on the streets. I mean, every day there are demonstrations, you know, all over the world. Whether it's sit-ins at railway stations or you know days of action, uh, you know, huge numbers of people on the streets all over the world at some point surely this must feed through to political elites Matt. it most it most certainly will um uh, but it, it most certainly will hopefully push the politicians and the diplomats to realize that they have to act what what I'm worried about uh, ha having worked in the region myself and uh, having uh, <clears throat> studied uh, the legal implications of uh, the Israeli state as such. This is a really big issue and it's definitely impossible to solve without deep insights and a need for real conversation within the framework of major statesmanship. And right now, I'm not seeing a whole lot of statesmen 
around in the West. Uh, there is there is not really uh, who 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 would be an intermediary statesman who could come in and get the parts in the conflict to sit down and really start a conversation about a one state or a two state or a no state solution. The, to me, to me, there there isn't one because this. The, the stakes have gotten so high and the temperature is at such a boiling point that the cooling off period, it's, it's just going to continue for such a long time that we're going to end up with 20,000 killed children before any statesman steps up to the, bat, to the plate and says, enough is enough. Uh, well, that, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, that, that yeah, and I mean it's, that would appear to be the case. We certainly, we certainly can't expect any statementship from Joe Biden, um, who uh, you know, apart from being semi-senile, has uh, admitted his long-standing uh, commitment to Israel. There is no honest broker, really. The Israelis are being accusing the United Nations Secretariat of anti-Semitism, um, and on the other hand, you've got you know von der Leyen. Uh, Blinken, uh, Rishi Sunak, uh, and, and Western leaders cozying up to Israel. There, there doesn't seem to be anyone willing to put any pressure on Israel because at the end of the day, any kind of meaningful solution uh, that gives justice to Palestinians requires Israel to make concessions. This has been the case since Oslo, before Oslo, and nobody is ever willing to put the necessary pressure on the Israelis. Now, it may come via the United States if the United States can be shamed or uh, legally sued even uh, into changing its position. And on that score, I want to hear now from Catherine Gallagher of the Center for uh, Constitutional Rights, uh, who spoke to Amy Goodman of Democracy Now! about how the CCR is suing Biden himself as well as Secretary of State Tony Blinken and Defence Secretary Lloyd Austin for failure to prevent and complicity in the Israeli government's unfolding genocide, as we can hear now. This case filed on Monday was filed on behalf of two Palestinian human rights organizations, Defence for Children International Palestine, Al-Haq, which is the oldest Palestinian human rights organization, which, for the first time in its history, is unable to do its work in Gaza because of the conditions, as well as three Palestinians in Gaza and five Palestinian-American families who have members of their families killed, injured, and under direct threat right now in Gaza. We filed this case against President Biden, Secretary of State Blinken, and Secretary of State Austin with two claims. One is that they have absolutely and completely failed in their duty under international law and U.S. law to take all measures possible to prevent the unfolding genocide against the Palestinian population in Gaza. The United States is a signatory to the Genocide Convention, and in recognition of the severity that this is the crime of crimes when it it requires the specific intent to destroy a group, a national or ethnic group, in whole or in part, 
that is such a serious crime that states are obligated to take all measures within their control, all measures possible from the second, from the minute they learn of the possibility of genocide to stop that. We have not seen the United States do that, despite its considerable influence over Israel in the form of hundreds of billions of dollars in military aid that it sent over the decades and billions in the past year. Instead of using that influence to stop the killing, to stop the imposition of a total siege, denying all basic necessities to 2.2 million people in the enclosed space of Gaza. They have rushed weapons. They have given unconditional uh, political support. Up until yesterday, when we saw a Security Council resolution not yet call for a complete ceasefire, the United States had blocked all measures at the international level. So we are bringing the first claim for its failure to prevent the unfolding genocide. And the second claim is that it's actually complicit in genocide. We lay out the case that Israel is actually committing genocide at this moment. And we are able to do so, unfortunately, it's, it's with no pleasure that we say this at this early moment because of the very clear statements of intent by Prime Minister Netanyahu, by his, sec- his Minister of Defense, and other senior Israeli officials about their intentions against the entire population in Gaza. They have been clear that they see this, the people, the children of Gaza, as less than human, describing the population as monsters or human animals, and then taking away all of the basic necessities, food, fuel, water, electricity. We've certainly, as you just played, heard what has happened to the healthcare and medical facilities, bombed and invaded. And so in the face of all of this, the United States, when it has continued to send weapons, to send military advisors, to rush aid and give moral and political support to Israel's actions, we say it is aiding and abetting genocide. We're going to take a short break now. When we come back, I'll be asking Mats about Western public opinion about Israel and how the two-way relationship works. We'll be right back after this short break. The climate agenda is a national security risk. Where do you hear this? From Washington, D.C., this is the Morano Minute with your host, TNT Radio's Mark Morano. The climate and energy policies of California are threatening the security of residents. California has increased crude oil imports from foreign countries from 5% just 25 years ago to more than 75% today. According to Heartland analyst Ronald Stein, California is the only state in the United States that imports most of its crude oil feedstock to inside state refineries from foreign countries. California needs this oil for nine international airports and 41 military airports, as well as shipping ports up and down the coast. Meanwhile, Asia has 88 new oil refineries manufacturing fuel for California's airports and shipping terminals. It's time we recognize that the climate agenda is a national security threat. This is Mark Morano for the Morano Minute on TNT Radio. While serving in Vietnam, a grenade took my ability to see. Today, I'm a sculptor creating new visions. Now, my fingers are my eyes. As a veteran, I know the challenges of life can be great. In my art, turning a lump of clay into something beautiful 
That means a lot to me. Life is like that. We each must use what we can to make things better. DAV helps veterans like Michael get the benefits they've earned. They help more than a million veterans every year in life-changing ways. Now, I show others how they can create something with their own hands. With support from DAV, more veterans can shape their lives into a thing of beauty. My victory is bringing beauty into the world. Michael Naranjo, may your victories inspire many more. Support more victories for veterans. Go to DAV.org. You're with Basil Valentine and Compass on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. And welcome back to the program today, Friday, the 17th of November. I'm delighted to say I'm joined by Swedish geopolitical analyst Mats Nielsen. Mats, um, the relationship between Western populations and Israel has always been testy, but uh, it does appear to have deteriorated beyond repair with a lot of Israel's traditional allies in the West now seeing it in a very different light in uh you know, the light of recent events. Uh, if you'd like to comment on that. Of course. Uh, uh, the most obvious comment is that, that the U uh, West has always, or the US, I should say, has always shown absolute support for Israel, uh, especially after 1967. And uh, but what we're seeing now is that there is basically an erosion of American democracy because mm -hmm. the... Uh, it's fair to say that the older generation of Americans are, are clinging on to the same mindset about Israel uh, as, as, as the only victim in this. However, this time around, much of the younger population in America are not convinced anymore. Uh, more than 80% of the voters of the Democratic Party want the Democratic administration to call for a ceasefire. And the really interesting thing is that over 500 officials from within the governmental agencies have written a letter to the administration officially registra registering their disapproval for Biden's support for Israel. Now, this Biden, of course, dismissed this, and he shows no concerns for the deaths of innocent children, e even inside hospitals. And here is a disturbing pattern emerging that the american and for that matter european me methods of justifying support for israel before used to be keeping its voters convinced by using propaganda today the this propaganda isn't getting the european or american citizenry citizenry on board anymore so right. What, what, what we're seeing is that the West ignores the aspirations of its own citizenry and also yes. ignores the whole Vox Populi of the global citizenry. And this is yes. actually a huge danger in such as the discrepancy between the people in power and the voters are just going to continue to be stretched until breaking point when subsequent revolutions or uh, at least uprisings might might actually begin we, we we never know so somehow the west manages to stand on the other side of democracy as compared to other places in the so-called non-democratic world uh, concerning yeah. israel absolutely I, I heard some leaked footage of the 
um, Anti-Defamation League Chief Jonathan Greenblatt on social media uh, in the last few hours. Uh, and he was saying, we've got a big problem, uh, a problem we haven't had before. And the divide over Israel is not between left and right, it's between young and old. And that young people right. are turning against Israel. Indeed, the whole activist class, the the, uh, the BLM slash climate change agenda activists have latched on to the Palestinian cause. Um, and of course, bizarrely now, while these effectively sort of Democrat shock troops were embraced by the party uh, when they were railing against Trump, now that they're railing against the Democratic Party's own policies, they're being characterized as Hamas supporters and terrorist sympathizers and all sorts of other things. Um, uh, but this demonization of people simply wanting peace, wanting an end to massacres and terrible human suffering, this demonization or mischaracterization of them isn't washing anymore. That's the key point, Matt. Yes, exactly. That, that That's the key point. And it's, uh, as I said in the beginning, the polls are showing all over the West that more and more people are opposed to sending Israel weapons. Uh, even, even the Washington Post reported that um, in a poll that 43% of Americans were opposed to sending Israel uh, weapons. Uh, and in comparison, 41% supported sending weapons to Ukraine. So, so yeah. the, the opinion in, in the US is quickly shifting. And I don't think Israel right now fully comprehends how damaging this will be when the coming generation will be moving into positions of power. Yes. Uh, there is no way that you can turn the ideas of a whole generation uh, as ha has been done before, especially now in the time of social media, where uh, the pictures of the destruction is there for all to see. Uh, Reuters and Associated Press and all the others can't censor any pictures anymore because it's there. It's there 24-7. It's in your face in the morning when you log into your social media accounts. Mm -hmm. you, you can see the destruction that has been brought up, down on the people of Gaza. And there is really no excuse for the continuation of this bombing. And uh, the longer Israel persists to go against the global public opinion, the more damaging it will be for the Israel, Israel's statehood in the coming decades. Uh, unfortunately, no one in Israel seems to take this position because everyone is blinded by by the attack perpetrated in on uh, October 7th. Uh, and, and granted, it, it takes political leadership to, to be able to see beyond this attack. But um, right now, what Israel is doing is basically sell harm to, to its own continued statehood. Mats Nielsen, thank you so much for joining us today on Compass, and we'll see you again very soon. Thank you very much. Finally today, South Korea is finally going to ban the farming, marketing and eating of dog meat. Yes, they still eat dogs in South Korea, but it aims to ban the practice and put an end to the controversy 
over what is an ancient custom amid growing awareness of animal protections. The government and the ruling People Power Party have agreed to introduce an end to dog meat consumption by 2027. The age-old Korean practice of eating dogs has long drawn criticism from overseas, but there's also been increasing opposition at home, particularly from the younger generation. It is time to put an end to social conflicts and controversies around dog meat consumption through the enactment of a special act to end it, said Yu Yue-dong, policy chief of the People Power Party, at a meeting with government officials and animal protection activists. The legislation would ban the breeding of dogs for slaughter as well as dog meat sales. A three-year grace period would be matched by financial support for businesses to transition out of the trade. Mr Yu said the bill is expected to win bipartisan support in the South Korean parliament, which should allow it to sail through. Agriculture Minister Chung Hwang Kyun told the meeting the government would implement a ban quickly and provide the maximum possible support for those in the dog meat industry to close their businesses. First Lady of South Korea Kim Kyon-hee has been a vocal critic of dog meat consumption and along with her husband, President Yoon Suk-yul, has adopted stray dogs. Anti-dog meat bills have failed in the past because of protests by those involved in the industry and concerned about the livelihoods of farmers and restaurant owners. Eating dog meat is much less common than it used to be, but it is still favoured by some older people, and the meat continues to be served in some restaurants. And lastly today, Taylor Swift fans are ganging up on the insurgent candidate in the Argentinian presidential election, Javier Millet. Previously, Taylor Swift has garnered her fans opposing Donald Trump. And now they have another right-wing candidate to attack on social media, as we can hear now in this report. Macarena has chosen to remain anonymous in order to avoid cyber harassment, which Javier Millet fans are known to commit. She's the founder of the group of Swifties against the far-right candidate, inspired by her idol, the American pop star Taylor Swift, who has campaigned against Donald Trump. She has mobilized thousands of people on her social networks. Besides being fans of Taylor Swift, we are Argentinian women worried about our democracy, which is at risk. And as Swifties, we can reach people that are not usually interested in politics. They published a post on social media that was seen by millions of people and was also picked up by the Argentinian media. As Taylor said, we can wear pink, glitter and shiny things and also speak out about politics. Right before their idol's concert, the Swifties against Millet, who met on the internet, sharpened their weapons for persuasion. Friendship bracelets and flyers that mix political slogans and song lyrics. Luna is confident this micro-militancy, as she calls it, can have a great impact on Sunday's voting. We have fought too hard for our rights, for Millet to come and take our right to abortion. And there we are, Taylor Swift fans versus Javier Millet. I'm Basil Valentine. See you all again next week. Bye for now.